The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. All right, before we get started, just a couple of matters of house cleaning. There is a green sheet of paper, since it's December and Christmas, that's appropriate. Out there on in the foyer that's got the calendar for December. And a couple of things that you should note. Number one is this Saturday at 2 o'clock at 3 p.m. 3 p.m. It says 4, but it's 3, just to test you, to see if you'll listen, Okay. Now that's, you know, just like as we'll see later on, you know, God sends, wait a minute, I'm tangled up here. What? Okay. Okay, just, just to test you, don't believe what's written, believe what is read. In the, in the Hebrew Bible, they have a thing called a kathiv kare. And that's where, as you read through the Hebrew text, sometimes there were uh, various textual problems. And so you'll have the kathiv, that which is written, and the kare is written out in the margin, that's what should be read. So this is what is written, but you pay attention to what is read. 3 p.m. See how biblical we are? Okay, the next item of importance, and that's for the family, that's the tree trimming Christmas party on Saturday. The next item of importance is next Tuesday night there will be no... Bible class, that's when the pre-trib study group is meeting in Dallas, and several are going up to that. And then the next major item of importance is the ladies' prayer brunch, 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, December the 9th. Now, you will notice that on the 7th and 8th, there's something on the calendar called a Morris Proctor Seminar. Now, that doesn't bother any of you. I mean, unless you are using a program called Lagos that doesn't involve you, this is a computer program training seminar that we're hosting during the day on that Thursday and Friday. So when you come in on that Thursday night, there will be tables set up. Things will look differently, but that's okay. That's it. Everything else is pretty standard and normal uh, for the rest of, the de- of December as far as things go around here. Did I leave anything out? The 31st. On December the 31st, which is a Sunday, and New Year's Eve, there will be a brunch here. I think we did this last year, which means if we do it twice, it's a tradition and we'll always do it. That's how churches work, isn't it? But we're going to have a New Year's Eve brunch here on New Year's Eve. I don't know what we'll do next year because New Year's Eve will be on Monday. Okay, we'll worry about that later, Rhett. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure, make sure that you are ready to focus and concentrate. Make sure you're in fellowship, ready to take in and study the Word of God under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we're indeed grateful that we have the freedom to gather together this evening to study Your Word. We are thankful that we have Your Word. What a tremendous privilege this is that that too often we take for granted because it's so always been so common in our lives to have a Bible present, to buy, have two or three copies of the Scriptures. And yet, for most Christians throughout most of church history, having even a book of the Bible in their own language was a rare commodity. And so we treat this too lightly and we, we forget how, what, a, what a great privilege it is that we have your word. We have it translated accurately uh, into our own language that we can read, that we can study, and that we can know the mind of Christ. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, pray that we would be responsive to what we study, that we can understand these things and see how you are working in the background throughout the history of the world and in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're back to Genesis this evening after a hiatus going through a study on uh, the history of Israel or Israel past, present, and future. We've looked at several other things, but now we're back to Genesis and we are in Genesis chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40, moving on with our study of Joseph. As we started this series, I pointed out that perhaps the one doctrine or the one verse that you can go to in the New Testament that is a backdrop verse or, as we might say, a doctrinal umbrella for interpreting and organizing what's going on in the life of Joseph is Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things, or He causes all things, to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Now, just occurred to me when I read that, that I got a question on this the other day, and this is a question that has uh, been asked of me several times before, and I just want to go and look at that text for just a minute and clarify something to make sure that this is in your heads. Romans 8.28, and we know that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, comma. That's one category of believer, those who love God. That's a mature believer, as we've seen before, that not all believers love God. To love God, you have to know God. To know God, you have to study His Word. You have to spend time in developing that relationship. I've pointed out many times that at the end of three years of ministry, even um, Philip, who was a believer, is asking Jesus a question there in John 14. And Jesus says, Peter, I mean, Philip, how long have you been with me? And yet you don't know me. 
See, you can be saved but not know Jesus. You can be saved and not love the Lord. Love is something that comes as a result of growth. So the first category here is to those who love God. But there is a second category. There's a further explanation in the next verse. To those who are the called according to his purpose. Now let's define that phrase. And to do so, you have to look in context. Now I don't have a slide on verse verse 20, uh, 28 because or verse 29 because I just thought of this as as we got started. But in the next verse, we have a contextual definition of who the called are. You always have to look at the context to figure out who's who. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn uh, among his brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he, these he also called. Whom he, This is verse 30. These he, he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, I don't want to get involved in, a, in an exegesis of this whole verse, but I just want you to notice something, that there is a group of people, a group of people, let's say X, group of people, and who knows how many are there, several, several million, several hundred million perhaps, are believers. These are those whom he foreknew. Those whom he, the, the called, are those whom he first of all, foreknew, then whom he foreknew, he predestined. Any more, any less. No more, no less. The same group. Okay? No, you doesn't lose any. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Same group. No more, no less. See, all these terms refer to all the believers in the body of Christ throughout the history of the church. Those whom he called, these he also justified. No more, no less. Those whom he justified, these he also glorified. So all believers are going to be glorified, right? When we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord. So in context, those who are the called according to his purpose refer to every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, not just those who, who are mature. So what we have in verse 28 is that all things that God works or he works all things together for good to those who love God that is, mature believers, but also not just mature believers, but every believer, everyone who's called, justified, and going to be glorified. Everyone's in that category. And that's what we see back with Joseph. Joseph is like maybe 27 or 28 years old, and he is uh, a fairly mature believer, but not uh, he, nobody at 28 hit spiritual maturity. Trust me, I don't think that's possible. I don't think it's possible to hit any kind of maturity at 28, but... That's that's another issue. Okay, Romans eight twenty eight gives us that that framework that we see in chapters starting back in chapter thirty seven through chapter fifty is God working in the background in Joseph's life. We don't see God in the foreground, not like we do with Abraham. God appears to Abraham several times. God appears to uh, Isaac a couple of times. God appears to Jacob several times, but God does not appear to Joseph. He is in the background. And the major theme in this section of Genesis is how the blessing of God on the seed of Abraham works itself out in history when they are out of the land. And see, that's important because who's reading this for the first time? It's those Jews who've been in slavery in Egypt for the past 400 years. They've been out of the land 
And so part of the message here is that God, even though you were in slavery, even though you were oppressed, God had not forgotten you. God was at work behind the scenes. God was at work uh, covertly. So throughout this part of Genesis, we'll see God working covertly rather than overtly. And in that, we see a foreshadowing of how God works in the church age. God works covertly, not overtly. We don't see the manifestations of miracles. We don't see special revelation going on with uh, dreams and visions, as we'll see in the chapter that we're studying tonight. What we see is that God has revealed His Word to us. The canon is completed, and the issue now is are we going to study His Word and learn what He has revealed and apply that rather than becoming dependent upon these overt activities, these overt actions of God. Now we're in the middle of Joseph, or basically toward the beginning of Joseph, so let's review a couple of things that we've seen so far. First of all, Joseph is the eleventh son of of Jacob. He's the eleventh son of Jacob, the first of Rachel. Rachel is his is his mother, and he's the firstborn of Rachel, who is the wife Jacob loved. He is Jacob's favorite, which angers and provokes the other brothers to jealousy. As I thought about this, in a way it foreshadows how God's later favor, in history later than Joseph, but present today, how God's favor on the Gentiles today, according to Romans 11, is designed to provoke the Jews to jealousy. That's exactly what Romans 11 is all about, that God has given the blessing has transferred blessing to Gentiles, to include Gentiles as the wild olive branch grafted onto the olive tree during this age that we might provoke the Jews to jealousy. The, the idea there is, is like giving a, a, a toy to one kid. You give this toy to a six-year-old kid, and, and they just act like, oh, well, I don't really care. It's not that important. Then you take it away from him and give it to another kid, and all of a sudden, yeah, I want that toy. That's my toy. He can't have that toy. And all of a sudden, he becomes jealous and angry and wants to get it back. And that's what God is doing in history by transferring blessing to the Gentiles and to the church because of the Jews' rejection of Jesus as Messiah. He is provoking them to jealousy, and it's taking time, but eventually they will turn back to God, and they will want that blessing. And at the same time, Romans 11 points out that the Gentiles will at that time also turn their back on the blessing that God has given them. So we see this foreshadowed in the actions of the brothers, that God, that J- Jacob gives his favor, his blessing to the one son, to Joseph. And it provokes those brothers to anger, jealousy, extreme anger. They're so mad at him, they won't even talk to him. They can't talk to him. And and they begin to plot and conspire against him that they're going to kill him. And then, of course, Reuben comes along and tries to dissuade them from that and just put him in a pit, put him in a cistern, and um, let him die there. Of course, he was secretly plotting to release him. And then, unbeknownst to Reuben... Uh, Judah came up with the idea, well, let's make a little money off this deal. Why, why, why kill him? Let's sell him into slavery. So uh, unbeknownst to Reuben, they sold Joseph into slavery. When Reuben came back to let him free that night, he was surprised because he wasn't there, thought he had actually been killed uh, by a wild animal. And so Joseph goes from being the preeminent son to the pit. 
and then he goes from the pit of slavery to being a possession of Potiphar. And he is bought by Potiphar, who is the chief of the guards or the chief of the bodyguards of Pharaoh. He is in an extremely prominent position. This would be equivalent to being the head of the secret service around the White House. Potiphar has a position that has tremendous responsibility. And as such, Joseph begins to become aware of and to know who's who in the administration of the Pharaoh. It's interesting how God worked that out because as as Joseph comes into Potiphar's household and he begins to fulfill his responsibilities, we're told in chapter 39 that God blessed him. And before he's 37, 38 years, I mean, before he's 26, 27 years of age, uh, Potiphar elevates him over all of his slaves. And so once again, he goes from the pit of slavery up to a position of prominence as the chief of all of Potiphar's slaves. And when he's in that position, he would be in a position to move around the household of Pharaoh and in the capital of Egypt, and he would get to know who the major uh, players were within the kingdom of Egypt. And then, of course, he comes to a major test of integrity with Potiphar's wife who starts to put the moves on him and wants to seduce him and he flees from her demonstrating his integrity and he says he's not going to it's interesting I pointed out how he handled that because he said he's not going to sin against God by doing this against his his master so he is focused on God he is oriented to God in everything that he is doing but she falsely charges him with rape. And so he is arrested and he is put in prison. And once again, he's gone from, he's gone from preeminent son to the, to the pit. Then he's gone to prominence as a slave and now he's in prison. And even in prison, God is with him. And we continue to see that all, God is working all things together for good. He is working through the circumstances. Now, Joseph doesn't see the fabric of all of this. He doesn't understand what's going on. The only thing that he has of any form of doctrine to latch onto is two things. Number one, the Abrahamic covenant. The promise that God made to Abraham was surely taught to each of the sons and passed down from generation to generation. And so he knows that it is through the seed of Abraham, that all the world is going to be blessed. And even though he's out of the land that was promised to Abraham, that God has not forgotten him and God is doing something. And number two, he has those two dreams that he had back in chapter 37, which indicated that he would have a position of prominence over his brothers and that they would bow down to him in obeisance. And so he, that's all he's got, and he's latching on to that because he knows that God has a plan and God has a purpose even though he is in prison. And so he continues to be faithful to the Lord in whatever responsibilities he's given. He fulfills them well. And in chapter uh, 39, uh, verse 20, we're told that Joseph's master, that would be Potiphar, took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. So he's not out there 
at the uh, Sugarland unit with all of the common uh, murderers and drug dealers and dope addicts and all of the other scum that inhabit the everyday prison. He's, a, he's at the Egyptian Club Fed. And he is, everything is going pretty, pretty good for him uh, in that sense, that it's not the worst that it could be. It's the private uh, dungeon, the private prison of, of the uh, Pharaoh. In fact, the person who's ultimately in charge is Potiphar. Potiphar, as the chief of the bodyguard, was also in charge of the uh, Pharaoh's prison there in association with uh, uh, the the capital or with with, uh, uh, Pharaoh's entourage. And the keeper of the prison, who's probably not uh, not Potiphar, but the individual who's who's directly in charge of the prison, uh, recognizes that Joseph has tremendous abilities, and so we're told in verse 21 that the Lord was with Joseph, showed him mercy, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So God, again, is the one who's elevating Joseph. And the principle here is you're not promoted until God promotes you. The psalmist said that he who builds a house labors in vain unless God builds it. See, anybody can go out and build anything in the power of the flesh. You can build a great corporation. You can have a Fortune 500 company. You can build a church of 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, have uh, television, satellite all over the world. But if you do it in the power of the flesh and God doesn't have anything with it, then it has no eternal value whatsoever. It is nothing more than trying to fulfill the task that Jesus gives in the power and energy of the flesh, and too often that happens. You go to all kinds of seminars that will give you you know, 25 different ways to, to build a church and uh, 50 different ways to increase the giving in your church and all this. And it doesn't have anything to do with trusting God. It has everything to do with using salesmanship techniques and manipulative techniques in order to produce your own little empire here on earth. But the Lord is with Joseph and he promotes Joseph. Joseph is there. Now we're going to see something real interesting happen when we get into chapter 40. God is the one who gives him favor in the sight of the keeper of the guard. And the keeper of the guard puts everything under Joseph's authority. So I guess in modern terminology, he would be the chief trustee in the prison. And time goes by. Whatever Joseph did, we're told in the last verse of chapter 39, the the Lord made it prosper. So God is continuing his promise to Abraham. See, that we have to understand what God is doing in Joseph in light of the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. And that God is taking, using Joseph, of course we all know the story, to put him in a position of prominence as the prime minister in Egypt so that he can bring the whole family down to Egypt and for the next 40 years they'll be protected in the womb of Egypt and the nation will grow into a nation of two or three million people. So then we come to verse 1. It came to pass after these things, literally it came to pass after these words, that, and it came to pass indicates that some time went by, not years, but probably months. We know from looking at the chronological data here that a total of 13 years passes 
from the time that he is initially sold into slavery and and then the imprisonment before he finally is released into uh, a position of prominence in Pharaoh's court. He It comes to pass after these things that the butler and the baker, I like the uh, consonants here of the New King James, the butler and the baker of the king. The butler is really the cutbearer. Uh, the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord. Now the Hebrew word there for offended is the word hata, which is the same word we have for sin. They missed the mark. They violated the commandment. They sinned against Pharaoh. They committed some sort of crime against Pharaoh. And it seems that it is something of quite significance because as we look at the end of the story, we know that the baker is going to be executed in a horrible manner for his crime. So that means that they didn't do something of minimal offense. This was something of tremendous offense. Uh, they committed some sort of capital crime, and it's possible they were, e- they were even involved in some sort of conspiracy uh, against the Pharaoh, something of that, of that nature. The word translated ba- uh, butler or cupbearer in some of the other translations, is Moscow. And this is an official within the in, in, internal entourage of the Pharaoh. Kenneth Kitchen, who is a well-known Egyptologist and evangelical, despite the fact that he takes a late date of, um, of the date of Exodus. I don't agree with a lot of things that he says, but he's, he is a preeminent Egyptologist. He states that these officials were often foreigners. They were slaves as well within the uh, bureaucracy uh, and within the court of Pharaoh, were in many cases or became in many cases confidence and favorites of the king and wielded political influence. This isn't just a butler. This isn't just somebody who is waiting on the Pharaoh, opening the bottles of wine and pouring out his wine. He would often be a, uh, uh, a taster. So he was, would have to be someone that the Pharaoh would put a tremendous amount of trust in, that he would taste the wine first to make sure that no one had poisoned it, no one was attempting to assassinate the Pharaoh. He was probably the head of the guild of men who were involved here, who, who were responsible for waiting on the tables at any sort of state dinner, that sort of thing. So he has a very significant Position. Later on, we see Nehemiah has this same kind of position in the court of Artaxerxes uh, in the Persian Empire. So this is not just a, a lower level position. He has a very high, very significant, very trusted position within the court of Pharaoh. The other individual is the baker, the chief baker. And... Uh, this is an individual who was responsible for, for overseeing everything that was going on in the kitchen, the preparation of all of the food. So he was not just the, uh, he wasn't the sous chef, he was the chief chef. He was the, in charge of everything, all the production, all the baking, everything that was going on inside of the kitchen. He was, uh, kitchen notes that he would be the head of the baker's guild. So both of these men had significant positions. And whatever it was that they did, Pharaoh became enraged with these two officers, with the chief butler and the chief baker. Now it's interesting that we have an idiom here 
in the Hebrew, his nose burned. There's no word for anger. His nose burned. And that indicates that, that he, it's a picture of, of tremendous uh, uh, wrath and anger. So Pharaoh, Pharaoh gets angry with them and he puts them in the custody, verse 3, of the house of the captain of the guard. Now who's that? Well, two or three years has gone by. It may not be Potiphar again, but it very likely could still be Potiphar. The word for guard here, some of your translations have bodyguard. And I noticed that in some English translations, when it talks about Potiphar, it translates it that he was the chief of the bodyguard. And then when you get over into chapter 40, it's the chief of the guard. But it's the same word in the Hebrew. So it's either they're, they're both the captain of the guard or both captain of the bodyguard. But this would be the head of the security detail, the soldiers who were responsible for, for guarding and keeping security around the palace of the, of the pharaoh. So he puts them in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard. This is the Pharaoh's private prison again. They're in Club Fed along with Joseph. But see, it's the hand of God that's working behind the scenes. And because Joseph has been there for some time now, several months, he's elevated to a position of authority. So the captain of the guard puts them uh, under Joseph's charge. And Joseph serves them. Joseph takes care of them. And they are in custody for a while. So a few more months goes by. Maybe now as much time as a year or a year and a half has gone by while Joseph is in prison. And then the major event of the chapter takes place beginning in verse, verse 5. Verse 5 through 9 uh, describes for us the major event of the, of the, of the, of the episode. Then the, but, uh, the butler and or the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream. Both of them. Each man's dream in one night, and each man's dream with its own interpretation. In other words, each had a different dream, and each dream was distinct. They didn't have the same dream. There wasn't going to be the same meaning assigned to it. What this is emphasizing is they each had a separate dream. There's no collusion, and it's clear that there's a different uh, interpretation to each of these dreams. But they don't know what it is, and that really, really bothers them. So much so that they are described as being very sad. In verse 6, we read, Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. Well, it's a much stronger word than that. The word in the Hebrew describes the raging sea in Jonah chapter 1, verse 15. They, they, they're, they're having an inner struggle, inner turmoil. They are deeply vexed by what they have seen in this dream, and they're fretting over it. There's a storm of emotion going on in their lives. And so uh, Joseph asked why it is that they are that their faces looked so sad. And in verse seven it's a different word. See in the New King James you have sad in verse six and sad in verse seven, but they're different words in the Hebrew uh, verse 6 should be translated, and Joseph saw that they were dejected, they were uh, sad, they were uh, fretting, they were uh, deeply concerned, emotional, in emotional turmoil. In verse 7, the word that's translated sad is a Hebrew word, ra, which means evil, and is often used to indicate someone whose facade, whose countenance is 
is depressed. They're just down, and they they look like they're uh, they just heard the worst news in the world. So he looks at them and saw that they were they were very very sad. They were, their faces looked as if something evil had happened. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of the Lord's house in verse seven, saying, "Why do you look so sad today?" And they said to him, "Or why do you look so evil today? Why are you so depressed?" They said to him, we each have had a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. That's why they're sad. They've had this dream. They, it, it, there must be something different about it. All of us have dreams. Some of us dream more than others, or some of us recognize we have dreams more than others. Some people have nightmares a lot of times, and they wake up. Some people have very vivid dreams. Some people dream in color. Some people dream in black and white. Um, some people can remember their dreams. Other people can't remember their dreams. But these dreams were different. There was something about these dreams that weighed heavily upon their thing. They didn't know what it was. But what we have here is divine revelation, but they don't, they don't know that. They just know that there's something significant about these dreams. So they say, we have a dream, but we don't know what they mean. And it was typical in the ancient world to put all kinds of import onto dreams. They uh, foretold the future. They predicted. They were uh, omens that predicted what would take place. And they had all kinds of books that were written to analyze all of the various different symbols, how to interpret the dreams, what this meant, what that meant, what this other thing meant. And so it was a, a ritual. And you would go through an apprenticeship with uh, some of the uh, dream interpreters among the Egyptians and, and some of the other other cultures there, and a lot of it involved uh, demonism, and it involved necromancy and other forms of occult activity. But they had no one there. And then Joseph makes a crucial statement in the whole text. He says, "Do not interpretations belong to God?" He just slaps him in the face. This is as polemical and as challenging a statement as can possibly be made. You know, people just get this idea, God's such a nice God, He's just so friendly, never says anything negative. But if you get into the original language of the text and understand the culture of what was going on in the Old Testament with Egypt and Assyria and Babylon, there are all kinds of little snide comments throughout the text, little innuendo about God is great and these gods are just they're just foolish. I mean, look at what happens in, uh, uh, in, in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 4 when, at the Battle of Aphek when the Philistines defeat the Israelites and capture the ark. And they haul the ark off to the uh, temple of Dagon and put the ark in there. And the next morning, that uh, politically correct, multicultural God of ours has Dagon down on his face worshiping the ark of the covenant. You know, this is not the God that people... Uh, want to worship, see, and, and they get on to pastors. Pastors have to be... Now I, had a, I had one of those insights this morning when I was teaching. Everybody wants pastors today to be motivational. Don't say anything negative. Don't be critical. We all want to believe what we want to believe and be very comfortable. We just want the pastor to validate our carnality. And we want to go to church where we can be motivated. Well, there, it dawned on me this morning and as I'm teaching at school that there's a book of the Bible... Two books, actually, in the Old Testament, as we have them in the English, that were written to motivate the Jews to get in gear to worship God. 
and to get in get back in gear in terms of redeveloping the priesthood and dedicating the temple and to get to get with it spiritually and that book is first chronicles and second chronicles isn't the original just one book now you never thought of first chronicles as motivational literature did you I mean, that wouldn't make the top ten New York Times bestseller list. You know, when God writes motivational literature, how does he start it? He starts off with nine chapters of genealogies. <laughs> you know, but that's what he's doing. He's going into history and saying, this is what I've done throughout all of history. History ought to motivate you, not put you to sleep. History puts you to sleep. You better check your spiritual barometer. Because history is God's story and you have to look at it. So it just struck me this morning that when God wanted to motivate people, he started with genealogy. See, God doesn't think like we think. So there's a, there's a real, there, there's a, there, there's real sarc, well not sarcasm, but there's a definite polemical emphasis here from Joseph. He says, interpretations belong to God, not to all this uh, demonic ritual that you're used to. And then he says, tell them to me, please. Notice the confidence that Joseph has. He knows that God is going to reveal to him the meaning of those dreams. He has no doubt about it whatsoever. He is confident that God is still with him. Here he's gone from a position of of preeminence in the family to the pit, and then he's gone to prominence in the household of, of Potiphar, and now he's in prison. God's blessed him again. He is confident that God is with him. Not only that, the fact that the, the cupbearer and the baker are having these dreams reminds him also he can't help but think of those dreams that he had. Now, remember, he had two dreams. And now here in chapter 40, there's two dreams. And then in the next chapter, Pharaoh's going to have two dreams. So it's interesting in the Joseph narrative how dreams come in pairs. So he says, interpretations belong to God. Tell them to me, please, because he knows he can answer them. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my dream. Now in verses 9 through 13, we're going to cover the uh, cupbearer's dream. And this is positive because the interpretation is going to emphasize that the cupbearer will be restored to his position and privilege. So the dream is described in verses 9 through 11. A vine was growing before me, and in the vine were three branches. It was as though it had budded. Its blossoms shot forth, its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and place the cup in Pharaoh's hand. So it's a picture of him carrying out his responsibilities of filling the cup of Pharaoh with wine. So Joseph interprets it for him. This is the interpretation of the dream. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler or cupbearer. Now, that's positive. Now, you can see the baker, and the baker may have had a guilty conscience. There's, there's something here about his reticence to tell the dream that to me suggests that perhaps he had a sense of foreboding, and he may have even had a guilty conscience. Because it, when it's over with, the three days are over with, and it's Pharaoh's birthday, Pharaoh's going to free the cupbearer. And it suggests, and I'm just speculating, it suggests that Pharaoh did some investigation, discovered the cupbearer is innocent, but the, but, but the uh, baker is not. 
But I'm just drawing that out of his reticence here because in the, in the next verse we read, verse 14, we get into the baker's dream. Or excuse me, verses 14 through 15, we have a little interlude there because, um, because Joseph is going to put, put, set forth a request to the, to the cupbearer. He says, okay, you're going to go back and Pharaoh is going to restore you to your position, but remember me when it is well with you and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. Now, I've always heard that, Pharaoh, that, that Joseph was probably wrong in doing this. He just wasn't waiting on the Lord. And I'm not sure that that's true. There's nothing in the text that really indicates that uh, at all. He could be trying to jump the gun. He could be impatient. Or he could simply think of this as, well, God has given me an opportunity and an open door here, and I'm going to take advantage of this situation that God has providentially put in front of me, and I'm going to make this request, and perhaps this is the way God is going to uh, free me from prison. So in either case, Joseph is in a position where he still has to pass the weight test, whether he is uh, a whether he has appropriately made this request or whether it's inappropriate, he still has to wait on the Lord. Remember, God always answers prayer. He answers them three ways. Yes, no, and wait. It's the wait that's tough. But waiting is to teach us how to trust God, to make sure we're truly trusting Him, not just saying, oh, yeah, God, I'll trust you, and then five minutes later go, well, wait a minute, you, you haven't solved the problem yet, so let me try to figure it out on my own. And there's a lot of promises that relate to this principle of waiting on the Lord. Psalm 25, verse 3 says, Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. So, there is a contrast here between the person who is relaxed and waiting on God to deal with the situation and those who manipulate the situation to bring about their desired ends. Psalm 25:21. later on that same psalm, the psalmist says, Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. So there's a connection between waiting upon God, relaxing and putting the situation, the problem in God's hands, and integrity and uprightness. The creature doesn't get out there and manipulate the situation. Now, that doesn't mean you don't take responsibility for things. But there's a place where there's an inordinate involvement in trying to make things happen. And what, you know when you get there, when all of a sudden you're trying to push and, and shove and make it happen rather than just waiting on the Lord. Psalm 37, 7. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way. Don't look on the other person and say, you know, that lousy, no good person. I know everything they've done wrong. They are rotten to the core. They're manipulative. And yet, God just seems to bless them and prosper them. And see, David recognized there are people like that in the devil's world. And he says, don't worry because some other person you know about seems to be getting away with it and prospering uh, despite his disobedience. He says, don't fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Your job is to trust in God and to wait on him.
Psalm 62, verse 5. The psalmist says, My soul wait silently for God alone, for my hope, literally, our confident expectation is from Him. It's God's plan we need to be concerned about in our life, not our plan. We need to let God be the one to bring about our success, to bring about our promotion, just as He's promoted uh, Joseph numerous times. And Joseph needed to wait on the Lord to release him from prison and to promote him. So that is his particular test at this point. Verse 15, he explains to the cupbearer his problem, that he was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews. That's an interesting phrase. You don't run into that very much. It, if you do, it's before David. And this, this phrase referring to the land It's not the land of Israel, it's the land of the Hebrews. And what that shows is that even though they don't control the land, Joseph understands that the land of Canaan has been given to them, deeded to them by God. And even though uh, some other people, you know, the the pre-Palestinians are living there, the Canaanites, and they're living there in the land, they don't have title deed. It is the land of the Hebrews because of the Abrahamic covenant. So he says, when I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and also I've done nothing here that they should put me into this dungeon. He says, look, I'm an innocent victim. Now this may be where he gets out of line because he's getting pretty close to having a pity party here and talking about how, oh, I'm just the victim of all these injustices. But he may or may not be going there. We can't really be sure from the text. All we know is nothing happens after this. We have to connect verses 14 and 15 to the last verse in the chapter, which tells us that when the cupbearer did get away, he did not remember Joseph but forgot him. That's the test for Joseph, is that he has to continue to wait upon the Lord. Well, now we come to the second dream, the chief baker. So when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, you see, that's where I get the hint that he's, he, he doesn't really want to know what this dream means. And that suggests maybe he suspects something or he's guilty, he has a guilty conscience, and so he's been holding back. And now once he hears that, hey, you know, that news wasn't so bad, I, I'll tell him what my dream was also. He said to Joseph, I, I also was in my dream, and there were three white baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. Now, according to the Egyptian dictionary, there are 38 kinds of cake and 57 different varieties of bread that we've been able to identify that were uh, in use in Egypt. So that shows that the Egyptians had a finely developed palate and they really enjoyed bread. And they had developed the art of baking to a fine art. And they had produced some fine pastry chefs. And he was one of them. So he sees that there were these three white baskets or baskets of white bread. Now, this isn't the kind of white bread that you get down there with, uh, you know, the thinly sliced sandwich bread. This isn't, you know, uh, Ms. Baird's. This was made with white flour, though. That's the emphasis. And he says, uh, the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered, and now he's interpreting the dream. He says, this is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you 
and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Pretty gruesome form of death. So that confirmed that he probably really didn't want to know what that dream meant. I can imagine he probably looked pretty, pretty looked, if he looked dejected before, he really looked down now. And then we have the fulfillment of the dream in verse 20. Now remember what we have in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, we have a test for the validation of a prophet. And this is in two separate uh, passages. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 5, and then in Deuteronomy 18.22. These are the two tests in the Mosaic Law for validating a prophet. Now, I want you to listen to what God says to Israel in Deuteronomy 13. He says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes to pass. Now, notice what that says. You've got somebody who's a miracle worker. You've got Catherine Kuhlman who is healing people from the pulpit and they're, they're getting healed up in the balcony of cancer. Oh, must be from God. They got healed from cancer. I can even prove that they had cancer and they got healed. According to the Bible, that can happen and it doesn't mean anything. Okay? What this text says is you have someone claiming to speak from God and their miracles really do come to pass. They do heal somebody. See, when you deal with folks who are in the charismatic movement, and I remember teaching something, uh, teaching on this subject in a Bible class one time, in a home Bible, Bible study, and there was a lady in the church who was definitely not charismatic, and her mother was visiting from out of town. And, her, and I was teaching on healing. She said, but I don't believe that. I was healed of cancer in a Catherine Kuhlman uh, crusade. Some of you aren't old enough to remember Catherine Kuhlman. But that's why I use that example. And I said, it doesn't matter, lady. Let's go to Deuteronomy 13 and see what this says. What matters is her doctrine, not her actions. That's what God says. And the sign or wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you saying, Let's, and then he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. Okay, what you have is a miracle, a true miracle is performed, but the message violates accepted canon of Scripture. The test of the, of the validity of the miracle and the source of the miracle is the content of the message, not the validity of the miracle. That's what God says. Here the guy comes along and their doctrine's wrong. Therefore, it doesn't matter. Don't get distracted or confused by the fact that you've got a healer on your hands and somebody who's really performing miracles. So what? Just because they perform real legitimate miracles doesn't mean they're from God. Why is it given? Verse Deuteronomy 13.3 You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. In other words, when the Word of God is more real to you than the miracles and the healings, then you love God. When you get distracted by the miracles and the healings, when the message doesn't fit the canon of Scripture, then you don't love God. You love stimulation. You love emotions. You're in love with, with ignorance, biblical ignorance. And God says that He allows this to happen to test people to see if they really love God. Hmm. 
We could go down a lot of rabbit trails with that, couldn't we? Deuteronomy 13.4, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. God doesn't want competition. Competition's good in the marketplace, but not in the marketplace of theological ideas. God only has one, authorizes one revelation, one message. Now that's the first test. The first test is doctrinal consistency. It's not the miracle, it's the message. And that's what it means when we say it's not the man, it's the message. It is the content of the message. It is the doctrine that is being taught that validates the miracle, not the other way around. Then the second test is in Deuteronomy 18.22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if a thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. In other words, there's a 100% validation here. Everything has to come to pass. If, 99, if he has 99.9% accuracy, off with his head. It's not from God. Nobody has a right to say, thus saith the Lord, unless the Lord really is speaking. And so Deuteronomy 18.22 concludes that that thing which is what the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of it. Now let's apply those tests to what happens with, with Joseph. The first test, he actually performs a miracle. He interprets a dream. But he doesn't, his doctrine doesn't violate Scripture. Second, we see that what he says comes to pass. That's the real test that's here. Now, it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, verse 20, back in Genesis 40, verse 20, that he made, that is, a Pharaoh made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler, or the chief, uh, the chief cupbearer, and of the chief baker among his servants. So he brings them out from prison. In verse 21, then he restored the cupbearer, the chief cupbearer, to his butlership again, and he placed, he that is the, the cupbearer, placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. In other words, Joseph passes the second test. What he said came to pass exactly as he said. It gives us a principle for interpreting prophecy. The prophecy can be interpreted literally. So, verse 23, Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now, did God forget him? No. God hasn't forgotten Joseph. And God hasn't forgotten you. When you are in the pit or in the prison and you think that God has forgotten you because he's too busy over in Iraq trying to figure out the whole Middle East problem or you think that he's concerned about uh, this church or that church or these other people because they're so much better than you, well, God doesn't forget us. God always remembers us, but we have to have things happen in God's timing. That's what's important. God has the right time, and we have to remember the principle that that God will. You're not promoted unless God promotes you, and you may promote yourself, and you may build a big company, you may become well known, you may become famous, you may build a big church, you may have a great ministry, you may be well known, but if it's not done in the power of the Holy Spirit, 
then it has no eternal value whatsoever. It's just wood, hay, and straw. Now, before we close, I want to say just a couple of things about dreams and visions. Because a lot of folks get all caught up into this, and we've gone over this doctrine before, about three or four months ago, back in August. And the term dreams and vision are used virtually, uh, are, are used synonymously in the Old Testament. They're uh, overlap. In fact, they're used in synonymous parallelism in a couple of different uh, psalms. So there's not a lot of difference uh, between the two, and nothing particularly notable. Uh, in the vocabulary. Now, dreams and visions are part of divine revelation. And there's two categories of divine revelation that we talk about. There's general revelation and there is specific revelation. Now, general revelation is nonverbal. Nonverbal revelation. It's nonspecific, nondirective. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows its handiwork. In other words, you see what God has done, and it tells us something about God. It, it's limited in its, in its content, though. But that is general revelation. It's nonverbal. See, that's what you see in, in, in a dream. Uh, you have Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, but Nebuchadnezzar can't interpret the dreams. He just sees the information. He needs a Jew to interpret. That's what you have throughout the Scriptures is that there Even Gentiles have dreams, two kinds of dreams that go on. You have dreams where God appears and speaks to the individual like he did in Genesis chapter uh, 20 when he's talking to uh, Abimelech in Genesis 20 verse 6. And he tells Abimelech that uh, he's got a woman in his harem that's really married to Abraham. See, that's verbal. It's specific. It doesn't need any interpretation. Abimelech knew exactly what God was saying. But then you have other dreams that are symbolic. For example, when the Midianite soldier sees a, a dream, has a vision about the defeat of the Midianite army, he really doesn't know what it means, but Gideon is hiding in the bushes, and Gideon hears the dream, and Gideon is the one who provides the interpretation. In other words, you don't have Gentiles interpreting dreams anywhere in the Scripture. second thing that we observe is all these dreams have to do with moving God's plan for Israel along. They're not dreams that have to do with the trivial, mundane matters of everyday life. They're dreams that have to do with protecting the seed, Abimelech, with providing encouragement and blessing to the seed when God appears in a dream at Bethel in Genesis chapter 28, and we have the vision of the stairway to heaven with Jacob, and then God also speaks. God is interpreting the dream. We have other places where we have the angel of God interpreting the dream. That happens a couple of other times in Genesis. For example, in Genesis chapter 31, when Jacob has the dream with the striped and speckled sheep, he looks at that and he sees these striped and speckled sheep jumping around. He, you know, There's all kinds of ways you could interpret that, but the angel of God appears and gives him the interpretation. Same thing happens in Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar has these dreams, but he has no idea what they mean, but a Jew has to interpret them. And who is it that gives Daniel the interpretation? It's God or an angel that appears to him and identifies the symbols in the dreams. So when we talk about dreams, they were primarily given early on. The majority of dreams and visions, although they were that are mentioned in the Scripture, there are some that are mentioned 
they're just mentioned peripherally later on. But the majority that are mentioned are mentioned before the Torah was given, before there was written revelation, at a time when they didn't have a canon of Scripture, so there was a more active need for direct revelation to the patriarchs to move the plan along. In some ways, that's analogous to the fact that in the Old Testament, you had to have special revelation because there wasn't a completed canon yet. You had to have miracles and signs and wonders uh, during the time of Christ because you don't have a completed canon yet. You had to have signs and wonders in the early stage of the New Testament because you didn't have a completed canon. But once the canon was completed... Then prophecy, which was partial, had to cease. Knowledge, which was partial, had to cease. Tongue ceased because it wasn't needed anymore because revelation was completed. And the issue now is are you going to trust in God's Word or trust in the miraculous? And that, you know, that's just as much a problem for the Jews in 1400 BC as it is for a lot of Christians today in the 20th century. We want to walk by sight and not by faith get things kind of backwards. We need to walk by faith, which means we need to trust in the completed canon of Scripture. So what we see with Joseph here is that God continues to work behind the scenes, but in terms of his spiritual life, he doesn't see that any more than you see it or I see it. What we have to do is walk by faith and trust God, and that means we have to wait on the Lord. And like Isaiah 40:31 says, Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall uh, walk and not faint. They shall run and not grow weary. And they shall walk and not faint. So we leave Joseph waiting, just like we often wait. He has no idea how much time will go by before God finally works. And what we see in the beginning of 41.1, then it came to pass at the end of two full years. So Joseph had a two-year waiting period. You may have a 10-year or 15-year waiting period. It's whatever God has in mind. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be encouraged by your word, to learn these lessons from Joseph, to realize that it is your word, it's your revelation that encourages us. Just as you revealed these things to the baker and to the butler in relationship to their lives, and you use that in your plan for Joseph, the very fact that you were revealing yourself encouraged Joseph. And your revelation in your word to us encourages us. The content of your word strengthens us as we face the daily battles and adversities of life. We pray that you would strengthen us with the things that we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.